0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to CollaborCast. Today, we are joined in the metaphorical studio by special guest Meg Kissinger. Meg is an award-winning investigative journalist and the author of the memoir, While You Were Out, An Intimate Family Portrait of Mental Illness in an Era of Silence, which came out just a few months ago, Mm -hmm. September of 2023, from Celadon Books, which is an imprint of Macmillan. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're thrilled to have her with us today to, to talk about her very powerful memoir in which she Covers growing up and coming of age in a in a family with seven other siblings, and um, all all that they went through. So, thank you so much for joining us, Meg.
1: It's my pleasure to be here.
0: So we are we work with a lot of aspiring memoirists, and one of the big questions that we find ourselves addressing, grappling with, are. How, how does an aspiring memoirist decide on the frame to put around their story, the, the lens through which they're going to look at things and, and tell yours? I, I, I felt yours was really compelling to me in that there's you're looking at mental health and then specifically mental health in, in an era of silence, which it's, it's mental health in the context of stigma and silence and shame. And so I, I, my first question for you is how did you decide on that? How did you come to that? Were there other lenses that you considered before arriving there? If you could just tell us a little bit about how that all came to
1: be. Sure. Well, um, a really great piece of advice that I got when I started this uh, was that your memoir is not about you. <laughs> <laughs> Which greatly disturbed me. I thought, "What the heck? Like, I want to write about me." Uh, but uh, the uh, person who was giving me that advice said, "Well, just what you said. Nobody really cares about somebody they don't even know. So it's really got to be what the reader can learn from you." And I know that as a reader myself. Why? Why do I read memoirs? I want to learn about my life, and I want to know about what you know what I can learn through, through the experience of somebody, somebody else. So what I know best or what I thought I knew best was what it was like to grow up in a house with a lot of mental illness and have all these questions unanswered. And so it was what I learned because of what I went through and what I went through was, you know, again, living with, um, people in my family with profound mental illness. Um, and so that's, um, that was the framework that I set about. Uh, the second thing is, you know, every good.
0: So did that, if I could just hop in. So was sure. was that something that was clear to you early in the writing process? You mentioned that that was what you knew. That was kind of the thing that you had that you felt was most powerful to share. Was that Was that clear to you at the beginning or were you, did you find yourself staring into kind of like the giant soup of your life and, and having to take some time to really figure out where obviously you have, there's some very dramatic things, some very painful and difficult things that, that jump out. And, um, you know, I would imagine. I mean, I knew that
1: I knew that our story, our family story was compelling. Uh, and I knew that we had good lessons to impart, but I think it really goes to the, at the core, I was after, um, advancing my argument, you know, so again, every good book, uh, has a, an argument to it. And my argument is that mental illness, or or I should say silence or shame, shame is toxic and shame can kill. And in the case of our family, it was the shame around the mental illness in our family. So it kind of grew organically from there, from the spine of that being shame is toxic, shame kills. And then, that lens got widened out to to. Or I don't know if it got widened out, but the focus was on the mental illness, um, and that was what I knew as both a sibling and a daughter, and then later a journalist. So I knew I had I knew I had many different vantages to tell that or to make that that case to make that argument.
0: Ah, oh, so the the that sense of shame really was kind of the first thing that that stood out as a yeah as a concept to write about as something to explore. And then from there, it was, it became the mental illness right. component.
1: Yeah. Because um, not everybody's going to have that kind of illness in their family. Um, but almost everybody has shame. Almost everybody comes up with, you know, there's something in their life that causes them to be ashamed and bury that shame to no good end. So that was, yeah, that was what I was, getting at is we need to talk about this uh, and I also knew that that was a topic that is now getting a lot of attention Of course I started writing this book like 25 years ago or something I mean it, it took a long time to write the book but uh, when I when I finally got the contract for it and began writing in earnest it was really a couple of years but in that time I signed the contract for the book on March 13th of 2020. So we all know what happened on that. Day. <laughs> um, and literally like that was literally the day. Um, and, um, you know, now we're all still just mopping up from the uh, angst and, and machinations of, of the pandemic.
2: When you um, jumped in um, 25 years ago to start writing it, did you run into any issues where the volatility that had been your home life was still so incorporated in your sense of self that mm-hmm. approaching it from a creative standpoint was mm-hmm. difficult or limiting? Did you need those 25 years to sort of process yeah. and make peace?
1: Yeah. Great question, Ben. Yes, I did. So I think I needed to be, were an old lady. I needed to be, I'm 66 years old now. I needed to be that, uh, to finally get this story out into the world. I, I was still grieving the death of my brother um, when I, so I, I began writing this right after my brother died and um, as really kind of a picking up his battle cry to me, his, his last words to me. He wrote me a letter the week before he died talking about what it was like to live with mental illness and you know, in it, he said, only love and understanding can conquer this. It sounded like a hallmark card to me. It sounded very cheesy. Um, but it was really, a, when you think about it, quite a profound and beautiful message. And so um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book or write a story about uh, the need for us to love one another and understand one another. Um anyway, but I was a hot mess, and I was there was all this unresolved gr- grief. Um, I still hadn't really sorted out my all my thoughts. So I made all these running starts at it, and they were terrible. Oh my god. i I first started out to write a fiction because I was uncomfortable writing about myself. and i I still I was worried that uh, the exposing what our family had been through, would be just too painful for both me and my family members so I I f- tried to fictionalize it was terrible I don't have the I don't have the imagination to be a, a fiction writer I'm a I'm a old-fashioned newspaper reporter really bound to facts so I really stuck to that so at, finally I yeah so that's a complicated way of saying I took a bunch of running stabs at it and finally it was only in the last maybe 10 years that I really resolved to tell this in the same way that I would write an investigative piece on someone else. I would just turn the notebook around on our family and and access the same sources, you know, source material that the police records of my brother and sister's deaths, the medical files, the court transcripts, I would go at it you know, in, in a very aggressive way that I would an investigative reporting
2: piece. Do you think relying on your professional training and going at it in an aggressive way was essential for being able to get through the vulnerability and the shame and everything else associated with it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that helped a lot. You know, it made it much more um, digestible for me. It was more it was familiar territory. Um, I just substituted the names of strangers that I would write about for me and my siblings. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, that was daunting enough, but, but no, it was, yeah, that was very helpful. And, um, you know, I did the same things that I would do, as I said, uh, in writing a, an investigative piece, including having a timeline and keeping, you know, Google docs of these, um, uh, archival material of these interviews and of these court records. And uh, I drew on them a lot. Yeah.
0: So it, it sounds like you had to almost make it impersonal first and kind of run it, like separate yourself from it, approach it as a journalism project. And yeah. before we started recording, Caitlin had the question about, whether it, well, Caitlin, what was, how did you phrase it? It was about Meg being the center of the process. And if that went contrary to.
3: Yeah, I guess I'd like to, cause um, coming from a reporting background as well, like one big hurdle is sort of wrapping your mind around you being the story when it's mm-hmm. so, it's um, such, it's so viscerally ingrained to, for that, for me, at least too, to for that not to be the case. And so mm-hmm. how, how how were you able to eventually get over that and also just come to believe that um that the story you felt that you needed to tell was good enough just a good enough story um, yeah. in the midst of just all the other you know great stories you've told
1: i i think i i knew from the beginning that it was a good enough story i mean there there's some dead bodies here <laughs> you know I, I knew that it was um I knew that it was compelling. I knew what our family had been through was um, something of interest to everybody. I also knew that my brothers and sisters and my family members are colorful characters. So I could rely on them to provide a lot of good fodder for the book. But it was hard, Caitlin, for me to really go deep on my own bad self, you know? So I had two editors for the book. Uh, one was a woman around my age, a little older, and the other was a very young woman in her in her mid-twenties. And she, the younger one kept pushing me to really internalize and to really kind of process and show more of my feelings at the time. And that was an instinct that was unusual for me. And it was, it was unfamiliar. And you're right. As journalists, you know we're always trained. You're not the story, um, and of course, when you write a memoir, you you literally are the story. I mean, that's the definition of a memoir, right? But um, so I had to. It, it didn't take too much convincing uh, of myself to know that um, that I could um, conjure. You know, I could, I could, I could tell it through my eyes. Um, Yeah, and 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 not in a again. I mean, I I kept thinking about what the that my memoir coach's advice about how the book is not about you; it's about what what you learned because of what you went through, and I knew that those were valuable lessons, and um and so I just kept focusing on that, and that gave me the confidence. You know, I thought I'm a vehicle, I'm an instrument. You know, for my readers to learn. So you know, like, it's not a good idea for somebody to write a book because they want to just understand their own life. I think that's why you have a therapist, or best friends or beer, or <laughs> jumping in Lake Michigan, or whatever it is that brings you joy, or, or or prayer, you know, what meditation, whatever gives you perspective and purpose. But it is good if, if in examining all of that, you have these great lessons that you can impart. And that, again, I'm sounding like a broken record, but I was always thinking, how is this helpful to the reader? And what is the the reader going to learn about themselves because of what I went through?
2: Does that feel like a great responsibility and weight? Like, Did you find yourself having to rewrite particular passages or chapters over and over because you thought this isn't exactly the lesson I'm trying to impart? And- I need to make sure I get this right. And I mean, as a, a lot... as a quick follow up to that, did
0: did you find that you were omitting things that meant a lot to you, but that you didn't know uh, how?
1: To... Uh, so uh, I was just going to tell this funny story about what ended up. There's a lot that ended up on the cutting room floor. One of them was a story about when I um, interviewed for the Milwaukee Journal back in 1983, and it was uh, you know it was an evening newspaper, and so our deadlines were early in the morning. Anyway, I'm a 25 year old reporter coming from Cincinnati and hoping to get a job with this great newspaper. And the editors took me out for this interview and it, it was lunchtime for them. It was 10 o'clock in the morning and they ordered beer. And I was like, oh damn, what do I do here? Like if I don't get a beer, I'm a prude, but if I get a beer, I'm a lush. Anyway, I and I thought this was like such a funny story and my editor read it and she was like, ah, this is a book about mental illness. and..." Your family. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that, you know, anyway, so that's just a silly example of something that didn't, it wasn't going to serve the reader. And it didn't, it didn't stick with the kind of the spine of the story or the, the uh, through line, you know, which is shame kills. And um, so there was, was it a, it was a, you know, I, I, so I had to rewrite, I had to keep thinking, again, how does this, how does this help? How does this serve? I just a note about rewriting. I love to rewrite. I mean, that's my favorite part, like barfing it onto the page and getting that first draft, you know, is exciting, but painful and confusing. But rewriting is like, that's where the magic comes in. And I, I just, that's to me just the, the big treat, you know, it's like gardening, you know, you move one thing here and take that out because it's too much clutter and um, so that to me is like the very exciting part of writing is rewriting.
0: I imagine you had a lot more opportunity to indulge in that with this manuscript than you would typically as a journalist yeah, under deadline and just having to get mm-hmm. things in and trust the editors and move on to the next thing.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Mm. What was it like for you? So you, you write about your sister's death, your brother's death, you, you, go back and you dramatize some some i would imagine probably the most painful days of your life mm-hmm. what was it like for you to go back and revisit those days and and to have to do so with a level of detail that can make them feel present and immediate on the page mm-hmm. and 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 what kind of support did you have as you were like that's a difficult psychological yeah. task like how yeah. did you how did you get through that without falling apart.
1: Yeah. Um, one word sangria. Uh, I, you know, I'm a tough old bird now. I think I, again, I'm, I needed to have all that scar tissue from being a reporter all those years. And, you know, I spent a quarter of a century or more, you know, writing about our nation's crappy mental health system and interviewing, you know, these gut-wrenching stories about the ravage, you know, the families ravaged by mental illness and our inability or our, our, our failure to care for them. So, you know, I'd seen the courage of other people telling their stories, and was willing to do the same. Um, and so, yeah, it's not for the tender-hearted. You really have to, um, you really have to stare down the beast. And I can remember the day that those police reports came back and I was, you know, hellbent on and reading through them to understand them uh, without glorifying the suicides. But I wanted to just, again, bear witness and take it all in. So, you know, I did all the stuff that you're supposed to do. I'm now a trainer for Columbia University. has a um, DART Center on Trauma and Journalism. So I, I work with reporters now talking to them about how imperative it is for them to protect themselves and to take breaks and to uh, process what they're going through and not to internalize it. I didn't do that as a reporter very well. Uh, I write about that in the book about how, you know, the buildup of all those years, writing about other people's trauma and tragedy really ended up, um, you know, doing a number on me um well it was not so just I knew,
0: writing I mean you were traveling with people you were yeah. embedded in some of these yeah. stories and right. you know the the the, the one I, I don't remember the names but the cross-country trip that you took yeah. and then you know for that to come to and 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 having to maintain your distance as a journalist but as you're you know I, I just I
1: yeah yeah it was tough so that was the going with with um Debbie Sweeney and her son Rob out to California and, uh, in her ill conceived quest, heart, you know, heartfelt, but, and with loving a mother's loving concern, but you know, it didn't, I could see that it wasn't going to end well and it didn't. And then my own guilt when we got back and she ended up checking herself into the psych ward and her son was much worse for the wear. And that was a real soul crushing, you know, experience for me to think, how much have I contributed to her collapse here? And in my zeal, you know, to get these great front page stories, you know, how much, how vulnerable am I making my the subjects of my stories? So anyway, without beating myself up too much about that, I knew that um, I needed to protect myself when I was writing the story, so, I mean, this book. So that's why I, I engaged the services of a therapist. Which, you know, at the tender age of 64, I finally got my butt into a therapist <laughs> chair. And um, why the hell I didn't do that, you know, after the all the stuff that happened in my life, you know, the deaths of my brother and sister and and the calamity with my parents, you know, it's kind of amazing to me that here, and ironic, you know, here I had devoted my career to railing against the inadequacies or the Inability for people to access mental health care. And it turns out I was my own biggest barrier. You know, I was the one keeping myself from um, getting my own mental health care. So, to answer your question, Jason, while I was, you know, putting this book together, I was very mindful of the need to maintain my balance on that. Um, my husband might tell you that I didn't always succeed, uh, but he was <laughs> wonderful and made me turkey sandwiches and like, just cheered me on. So I think everybody- Kept,
2: kept the sangria in, yeah, in kept, ample supply. <laughs> <laughs> what What was that experience like to go in to therapy for the first time and- be on that side of things and to yeah. be vulnerable to a therapist. And I'm, you know, hoping that you probably booked a double session for that introductory appointment yeah. or something. Because I know take well, a while.
1: I, I write about the first time that I tried to go to therapy years earlier and the, and the lady like her eyes just kept getting bigger and bigger. She's like, tell me about your family. It's like, woo, how much time do I have? <laughs> anyway, and then as, as I could see, she was like starting to freak out. And then I thought, oh, damn, she's going to like push a button and the guys are going to come with a net and take me away. So I lied and said I would get right back to her and then never went back. But when I finally got into the therapist chair in earnest, um, you know, I was, I was very relieved. I was very grateful. And, um, she was very uh, reassuring to me and helping me In my biggest ask of her. I just said, don't let me do or say anything stupid. That's going to hurt my brothers and sisters or, or me. Um, But I, I, I really wanted this book to be uh, a unblinking, honest um, account of what families go through and to show, again, I keep using the expression bear witness, but I did. I wanted to like, just, say this is this is what our family went through and if i know other families go through versions of this and if we could be a comfort to them great uh, and so the therapist was very helpful to me to help me set up boundaries you know to know what to write what not to write she wasn't my editor i mean i was very clear about that it was like it's my book but just tell me when i'm hearing too much in one direction or another
3: Well, i'm curious too. um coming off that like you i've you've i've heard you say in other interviews and um just too in that you the family members who are still living were really supportive of the book and how can you talk a little bit about like how you broached that subject to begin with and then yeah. what that process was like with i mean did they read the whole thing before publication and how did how did you Yeah, go about, you know, making sure that your fidelity to the facts, you know, was was really there and that not having too many cooks in the kitchen or
1: having all the members of your family also be de facto editors, you know? Correct. Yeah. And yeah, great question. And it was it was tricky. So I already knew going in that my brothers and sisters are hilarious and bright and generous. So I knew, you know, I I approached each of them individually and said, I want to write this book. I think it could be really helpful to other people. What do you think? They were all like, yep, let's go for it. And I said, well, here's the deal. You know, I've got to go over some tough stuff. I've got to revisit Danny's trial. My brother Danny had a cringeworthy, humiliating trial. He was, anyway, I won't go into it. People can read the book if they want but it was it was stuff it was you know an episode in our life that we did not want to revisit it happened 40 more than 40 years ago but it was important it was an important part of the story so i can't not address it so i but i so i went to each of them and said what do you think uh and and we we have to it's warts and all you know we have to tell the story the way it really happened um they were great so i said here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna keep this file you know I'm going to put all the our, all the stuff in there, the police records, the medical records, whatever. It's family material, so access it or not. But the one thing I am going to ask you to do is to read it before I send it into the editor. If there's anything in there that's going to cause us, this is going to cause you tremendous heartache. I mean, it's going to make you sad. The book is sad. You know, it's going to, we, we're plowing over, you know, the deaths of our brother and sister and the, uh, falling apart of my mom and dad, etc. So, but if there's anything in there that you absolutely can't live with, let me know and let's talk about it. But know this, it's my book. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I I have, well, I, I shouldn't I didn't say the final word, but, but if this is not a memoir by committee, you know, so don't get back to me and say like, could you put more in about how I was the homecoming queen and, you know, whatever they, they didn't do that. But, um, although as I did note, in the author's note, my brother Billy insisted that I write that he was the free throw winner in uh, the seventh grade basketball tournament. But anyway, that aside, that was the only demand that was made. And, um, and so they did, they all read it and they all gave thumbs up and there was, there was some gut punching stuff in there, you know, um, my oldest sister's abortion, uh, which nobody knew about. That was, you know, that was a Lulu, one of my sisters who, um, while she was a a college student, checked herself into a psych ward. None of us knew about that. So there was some really tough stuff in there that was revealed in some ways to me for the first time. Um, So they were very generous in sharing all that stuff. And it was important for them to, or for the readers to know that we were all damaged by the silence around our the shame of our mental illness in the family and and the toll that that took. So it was important for us, you know, to show how we were injured. Just a quick funny story. The only um, one that pushed back a slight amount was my youngest sister, Molly, who's a total hippie. And she's like, Do you have to say that I used to wake up and get stoned every morning? And I'm like, uh, yep, I do, girl. Because we all have skin in the game. And believe me, we're all we're all revealing, you know, the very embarrassing stuff, and you can handle that one.
0: So I had the same question as Caitlin and I was thinking in particular about Molly, and I was and 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 like I I think it's incredible that you were able to, to have the blessing of everybody. I think okay. that a hundred different authors, a hundred different stories trying to yeah. tell a story like this. I, I, I it, it's, I feel like you really lucked out with that. Frankly. It's a real, <laughs>
1: it's a real testimony to them. And, and they're, they, I mean, I am so grateful to them and they are, they're just amazing, wonderful people. So I'm, yeah, I'm just, a, a story could not have been told without everyone's uh, green light. And it, it, that was a profound act of courage and humility on their part to let me tell the story. You know, so I'm the middle kid, I'm the monkey in the middle. And I think I was the one with motive and opportunity. Um, but they, they've just been, yeah, I can't say enough great things about them.
0: Well, I think Molly comes across beautifully and vulnerably Mm -hmm. and an interesting character. So I hope she felt that she did her justice in the end.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
3: (laughs) Is there anything just generally about um, like everything, (laughs) the whole process, um, whatever it may be that, you know, now that you wish you would have known when you started writing in earnest?
1: Wow. Well, um, you know, I I talked about how how much I love rewriting. I think that's where so much of the magic of it comes in. Some of the stuff I was kind of writing at the very end, you know, I got Nancy's medical records. I'm so proud of myself for that. I found her medical files from 1976, and there weren't many of them. But anyway, I had to be declared executor of her estate, so I had to go to court. She'd been dead for forty something years at that point, um, but I had to, you know, I had to go through the hoops of getting these records if if there were any out there, and surprisingly, there, there were some, uh, and they were very illumin- you know, they illuminated the just kind of how people in mental facilities were regarded in that era. You know, they were spoken her very dismissively. Um, Anyway, and then I was I tracked down the woman who was her social worker, who was this lady in her 90s, and I just randomly called her. I don't know how the hell I found her phone number, but I did. Just her landline. Like, first of all, who still has landlines? This 90-something-year-old lady in, in Chicago. And she picked up the phone, and we had this amazing chat. Anyway, this was, like, right before the I was turning in the final manuscript. Um, so I've often thought, like, if I had even more time to write the book, would it have gotten better? It might have gotten worse, you know. I mean, there's that's the problem is you know, like sometimes if you work on something so much, you can sand it down so much that it falls apart. Um, but what I wish I would have what I learned in writing this that I wish I would have known at the beginning. I mean, I think this is true of all writing, is to have confidence in yourself, you know, to really trust that you, you know, nobody knows you better than you. And if you're honest with yourself and if you're, you know, I revealed a lot of stuff about myself that I'm not sure I wanted people to know, <laughs> you know, my mom called the cops on me. I had sex in high school. Like I forgot to tell my kids that part. And what they called me, like <laughs> when the advanced reader copy came out, my son called me, he's like, mom, chapter six. And I'm like, hurry. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> like, don't slouch, in mommy. But um, anyway, you know. But I think just have confidence in yourself and know that, um, yeah. And don't don't try to be too cute. Don't try to be too uh, cheeky or 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 puff yourself up. If you lay yourself bare, you know, if you are willing to throw yourself on the pyre of you know uh, public scrutiny. And really be honest and really tell the lessons that you learned. People appreciate that and they learn from you. And that's what a privilege that is to be able to, to, to do.
0: I feel like that is something that has probably evolved a lot in the 25 years that you, that you were working on this, mm-hmm. um, you know, that... Uh, like our access to vulnerability as a culture, as a society. um, I feel like that's shifted a lot. And the whole conversation about mental health, like, I I feel like, like the, the, the current era is there's still shame. There's still stigma, but I feel like that's shifting from when you began writing this Mm -hmm. or as you were going through this, is Mm -hmm. that, did, did you feel like over the two and a half decades that you were going through this writing process that you were seeing the needle move a bit on the conversations that are being had in in the media, in society, um, yeah. our, our oh, approach no to mental doubt. health, the access Absolutely. to therapy, all that.
1: Yeah. I mean, we didn't have the language to talk about this stuff when we were going through it as kids. You know, here's my sister in the throes of bipolar, you know, acting wildly and, and so ill, poor soul. And we didn't know how to talk about it. We didn't know what it was. So we thought she was just being a brat, you know, or somebody to be avoided and mean. So um, now we know that that's an illness and she needs compassion. Um, You know, I have said this repeatedly, but damn it, it bears it repeated once more, once more. And that is, um, I learned so much from my older brother, Jake. So my brother, Jake, lives in a group home for people with mental illness. Um, He lives just outside of Chicago. Um, And he is so... Uh, just so humble and so um, honest about what he struggles with, and he's a really he's a role model for me. And I just I think if if we can all be a little bit more like my brother Jake, and, and just talk honestly about um, what we're dealing with, um, and both ways, you know, so both in um, helping people who are struggling. Um, but also in asking for help for ourselves, and to say, you know, I'm not doing well. I need, I need a a hug. No, not, not necessarily a hug, but you know, I just need, I need to be listened to. And I, and I'm feeling sad today, or whatever. I, I think the um, the we're very our society can be very good about giving help, but not very good about asking for help. And that's an underdeveloped human quality that I wish we could work on a little bit more. Um, so that's a little pop psychology there, uh, away from the writing process, but but it served me well in the writing because once I was able to get over myself and to really be honest and to admit my own foibles, my own shortcomings, and my own you know fears and, and reservations and shortcomings. Uh, anyway, that all that um, it made for a much more honest and compelling read
0: well you do dedicate so you're the for those who haven't read it the book is is in three sections the first one which is the the overwhelming majority of the page count is is the family story but then you have another section where you talk about your experience as a journalist covering mental health and then a third section where it's, it's more your personal reflections yeah. I, I I found that to be a really interesting set of choices for a memoir. And I wondered how you came to that. If there were you know, typically it would just be the first part that, you know, the first chunk of that. And then you would like maybe weave some of that other stuff throughout. But at some point along the line, you perhaps with or without the the input of one of your editors decided, mm-hmm. no, we're gonna tell this and then we're gonna set aside a chunk of space to Kind of change the the window, change the lens, and then and then again. And I'm, I think it's interesting, and compelling, and I would love to hear you talk a bit about how that structure came to be.
1: Yeah, I originally wanted to be like this braided narrative, you know, so um, so have it have the family story intertwined with uh, maybe like a back and forth, maybe one chapter on the family, then a chapter on the mental health system. I wanted to, be, to educate people about all the stuff I learned as a, as a journalist, um, you know, about the history of mental health care in America and the flawed policies and, you know, how we moved from institutionalizing people to now abandoning them on the streets um, and just, and how, to, there was a lot to chew, there was a lot to bite off and a lot to chew. So um, I don't know if this was, I thought it worked, but but you, you're you the reader, you can tell me. But I, I ended up organizing it around a Mary Oliver poem. And I sometimes think that's lazy on, the ha- on behalf of writers to um, to do that. But it just was so profound to me. And I'm not a big reader of poetry, but somebody had pointed out this beautiful Mary Oliver poem in Blackwater Woods where the final stanza says um, this, it's, she says, in order to live in this world, you must do three things. Love what is mortal, hold it against your bones, knowing your whole life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. And so that's how I organized it. The first part was the mortals. That was the family part. The second part was the holding it against my bones, which was why I became a reporter so keenly interested in the mental health system was because I experienced the failures of that as a sibling and as a daughter. Um, and then finally coming back full circle to again turn the notebook on our, go back to my family, knowing what I know as a journalist and really slow walking through the days that Nancy and Danny died and to, to do a kind of a post-mortem or a reverse engineer as we do in journalism you know, after like 9-11 or George Floyd or, you know, January 6th, you know, to, to go back over the those events and to see what, what do we do wrong? What could we do better? So um, so that's how I organized it. Um, some people, you know, since the book has come out, some people have said that was too jarring of a division like they wish they either would have just stayed with the family or would have stayed with just the journalism stuff. I don't know. I, I, um, I, I think, I think it was a good choice and I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I, I think I accomplished what I set out to do, um, but, and I'm, uh, pardon me if I'm rambling a bit here, but if this is calling to mind another good piece of advice that I got from that, from Marion Roach Smith, who writes, you know, she's got this, Memoir project that um, she's a kind of a memoir coach, and she talks about you know not you can't throw everything into your book. You know, it's the analogy that she makes is it's like if Galileo went to Walmart. You know, that guy's he's going there for a, for a telescope, but he walks in, and he sees like bottled water or suntan lotion or you know, ladies underwear, um, you know, you can't get like so distracted, you can't just throw everything, clog up your book with every little thing. So you have to be judicious and, and again, serve the purpose of the book. Um, so I think I think I did that. But, uh, but I did organize that there were three distinct parts. But as Jason, as you note, like 80% of it was the first part. Um, yeah.
0: Well, for me it it worked. I, okay. I I I yeah, for this I speaking on behalf of this reader, uh, I thought that it was a, a successful set of choices. I think that your that Mary Oliver line is beautiful. I'm going to have to go look that up and I think that it was brilliant that you adapted that and I'm I'm you describing that as lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like okay. Well, that's that's you're setting the bar pretty high because I that to me that's 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 brilliant and incredible. Oh, good. Um, so if that if that's just if that was a bad day of decision making on your part, I've got I've <laughs> yeah, got a no, ways I to mean, go. It, my... it
1: really it really helped me though, and I think so. Your your um, writers who are you you're coaching. I mean, I, I would say that that was it was very helpful to me uh, focusing on that um, on that stanza really it did help me organize the book and i thought well this goes in the mortal part this goes in the bones part this goes in the letting go part so um and then one other thing about organization um this was helpful to me you you guys probably have all kinds of tricks that you teach your people but what was helpful to me was uh before i even started this was to write 75 different scenes you know, and not all made it into the book, but um, but it was uh, that was helpful. Yeah, because you always want to show and not tell as best as you can, and and having all those scenes at my disposal was really helpful. I'm literally
3: taking notes on all.
1: Yeah. them. <laughs>
3: so that is that is a good. I think that is a good. That would be helpful. Yeah.
0: Um so this is getting into in really into the the publishing and editing nerdy mm-hmm. weeds, yeah. but the I, I'm struck by how effective your subtitle is and there's it's always a struggle the title mm-hmm. and subtitle and I wondered if you could speak to to yeah. the journey of your your title slash subtitle journey and and how and where those came about and
1: sure so the title. You know, I always had that in mind because I thought it was, it's classic of my family to make a joke out of my grandmother dying. (laughs) So, you know, the title, While You're Out, comes from me as a college freshman going back to the dorm for lunch. And here's this little pink slip in my, um, the long before the days of cell phones. And this lady hands me this pink slip and just says, While You're Out, tour, it's Grandma died. And I'm like, Grandma died? Anyway... It just was funny to me that that's like how our family dealt with like these very heavy topics or like difficult news. We make we dispatch of it as a like an aside or later became a joke, you know. Um, And so I thought that that was a telling thing. While you were out, bad things can happen. You know, while my mother was out at the hairdresser, Nancy died. While my father was out playing golf, Danny died, you know. Bad things happened while we were out, um, but then the subtitle was meant to give it some definition. And the, originally, I had it as an intimate family portrait of suicide in an era of silence. But the um, marketing people thought I'd get a cast a wider net or get more people if you change that to mental illness. Um, so, that's so how those happened. were
0: yours. Those those were your ideas. Those were your conceptions early on, and.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Managed to have an editorial team who was receptive, and mm-hmm. that one. yeah,
1: it's a long subtitle, but um, but it says it. It it's also a trigger warning, uh, and so you know there yeah. are some very dark moments in this book. I mean, you can't write a book about a couple of suicides and abortion and anti-Semitism, and you know, there's a lot of heavy, heavy topics: alcoholism. You know, a lot. You name it. It's, a lot of that is in this book. So um, the title itself is something of a trigger warning. You know, it's an intimate family portrait of mental illness in an era of silence.
0: I think that it really does a nice job of of bringing together all the major concepts and mm-hmm. and that frame and the subframe, mm-hmm. um, if we want to use those terms. But um, yeah. I think that it it's, it's, and the title itself doesn't say much about all that, but it is, it still conveys a, a sense of absence, a sense of, of, like you said, there's, you know, things can happen. You turn around and you, you turn back around and you never know what you're going to find. Right. Meg, thank you so much for joining us. We've pleasure. really loved having you on, hearing the stories. Um, all the best as you continue in your work and we'll be
2: Looking for what you do next.
1: Great. Thank you so much. It was really fun to be with you guys.
2: If people want more about the book or more about you, uh, where should they go?
1: I've got a website. Uh, So it's medkissinger.com. Easy to remember. And then, yeah, you can find the book wherever you buy books.
0: Local indie bookstore, preferably. Indie bookstores
1: forever. (laughs)
0: thanks again all the best
1: thank you so much
2: for story for community